This is the Enlisted Podcast, episode number three with Lieutenant Ken Armstrong, United States Coast Guard. The Battle of Guadalcanal started in 1942 and was the first battle in the Pacific. Coast Guardsmen at Guadalcanal manned many of the Higgins boats, which are used to transport Marines between ships and beaches. Signalman Douglas Monroe led the boats that delivered Marines, including young Chusty Puller, a Marine who would later become a general and one of the most famous and respected Marines in the history of the Corps, to undertake a mission behind enemy lines. After Marines called in that they were being ambushed by Japanese forces and sustaining heavy casualties, Monroe volunteered to lead the flotilla back to extract them. He successfully removed all Marines, including the wounded off the beaches. Shin Monroe covered the last of the boats as they were leaving suppressive machine gun fire from his landing craft, and he was killed by enemy sniper. Dyson described his legacy to the embodiment of the Coast Guard's core values, which are honor, respect, and devotion to duty. And speaking of honor, respect, and devotion to duty, I have with me today Lieutenant Ken Armstrong, United States Coast Guard, who was a chief petty officer, E7, and he reached that rank within six years, and then he went and became an officer and uh, was out of service as a lieutenant, and he's here to join me today. Ken, how are you, buddy? Kevin, it's awfully good to see you, my friend. It's, uh, it's been a while. It's, it definitely has been a while. But, uh, you know, first, you know, what led you to join? You have all these services, all these branches, you know, the Navy, Marine Corps, Army. You hear a lot about them. What really got you interested in the Coast Guard and what led you to that decision? Well, you know, I have to say I've never done the easy thing in life and and uh, a lot of people would tell you i've never done the smart thing in life uh, so i you know i i don't know about the path that i chose to follow but i had been working up on the pipeline in alaska and i came back down to the lower 48 when they buttoned up the the job on the pipeline and i went from making i, I don't even remember like um six or seven hundred dollars a week up there when that was big money to making, you know, a couple, I think I was making like $500 a month in the lower 48. And I went to lunch with a friend from the pipeline. We went to Marina Del Rey uh, in California. And we were sitting there at a restaurant called Pieces of Eight, looking out over the marina. And Waldo, uh, my buddy said, hey, you know, I, I think uh, the, the Coast Guard is hiring these days. We just expanded our territorial seas, and I'm sure they're looking for people. I didn't know the Coast Guard from the lifeguard on the beach. I knew nothing about him, but I went and visited a Coast Guard recruiter, got really hooked on the story of the Coast Guard, and six months later, I was on active duty, and, and, and it was really as simple as that. Hey, I have to tell you, 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 you told the story of Doug Monroe, who is the only Coast Guardman to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, and and uh, Signalman Second Class Doug Monroe, um, when I went from being uh, a, a permanent enlisted person to a permanent officer, um, when I, when I, I think it was when I made lieutenant, they did that. Um, anyway, 
uh, I took my oath of commission in front of the portrait of Doug Monroe, and I, I wish I could just pop it up on the screen, but I do have a photo of uh, taking my oath in front of the portrait of Doug Monroe. So uh, really meaningful history there. You know, and I think a lot of people, when they hear the Coast Guard, they think it's maybe a safer option if you're looking to not get into too much conflict when you join in the military service, you think maybe. But they spend a lot of time overseas and a lot of time involved in combat situations, and they have a history of being in some pretty hairy situations. You know, uh, did you think the same thing when you first joined? Did you think that uh, there was a little bit less involvement? I thought I was going to be hanging around the beach in, in little bitty, uh, you know, 40-foot boats or something like that and, and, uh, and pretty much taking it easy. Uh, I had no idea that the Coast Guard stretched around the globe, that we did. In, in many cases, they send Coast Guard into places where they don't send other people. So we have special operations people and we have all kinds of stuff. And uh, I had uh, two bodyguard drivers in my last NATO assignment who were actually what they call riverine forces. They were from uh, uh, special operations forces from uh, working in South America, and these guys were working as my bodyguards. So uh, we, we've we got a lot of bizarre stuff going on with Coast Guard people. Yeah, because I think most people see, like, uh, the rescues. They do a lot of sea rescues. That is, like, what they are known for. They have uh, people jumping out of helicopters, you know, boats that capsize. They deal with a lot of the uh, enforcement uh, on the southern, you know, outside of Florida, Cuba, with the... Uh, narcotics enforcement, you know, they don't, you know, you wouldn't think that they are specialized in combat operations. But after reading that story, I had to, I had to share that at the beginning because I, I was amazed that, you know, I always thought to myself, did you really have that many people in the Navy to hit those, to drive those boats that brought the Marines to the beaches? They probably had to, you know, hey, takes up some of the Coast Guard's personnel to, and utilize them for that. And uh, that was very interesting to know that they did that. And and he, that story, he's a hero. And that's amazing. And uh, I'm sure there's many, many others throughout the Coast Guard's history that uh, fall into that category. And uh, well, a, a little known piece of history, if you look at all of the films that you've seen or the photographs of the D-Day invasion at Normandy in France, um, Almost every one of those Mike boats that hit the beach at Normandy was being driven by Coast Guard. So, you know. Something we, that people don't to, realize. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, the American people don't don't really know what their government is doing, which is kind of the, the bad news. Uh, right. We need to A little scary. Much more <laughs> yeah, we need to be more transparent in our government. So, um you enter the service, you, you do six years, and you reach the rank of Chief Petty Officer. That is something. You're, that's an E7. That is uh, very uh, – that's unheard of. Uh, I mean, six years is not a long – I mean, that usually takes people 12 years to reach an E7 rank. You've reached it in half the time. Tell me a little bit of what you did to achieve that. What, what, what specifically – how did you go about your work? Yeah, well, you know, my timing was good, and uh, you know, uh, frankly, I just tested really well, and 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 had some fabulous assignments working for admirals and people who could help to to move me along. So it was partly my credit and partly just uh, just really excellent timing. But 
I went out of boot camp into the engine room of a tiny ship in Los Angeles. And uh, I, I really, I was a diesel mechanic. I, I, I love being a mechanic. I love working with my hands. But being down below decks while the ship was underway, uh, aside from the seasick aspect of it, I didn't get to see what was going on. It, 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 every day looked the same. It looked like standing between two engines in the engine room. Um, and, and I wanted to know more about what was going on. So um, when I was given an opportunity to go to school to become, um, they call it a yeoman, which is not the same as a Navy yeoman, but um, sort of an administrative specialist, I, I took that school just to get out of the engine room. And that just ended up being just the right thing. I went to San Francisco. I worked for an admiral there who became the commandant of the Coast Guard. I uh, worked for a couple of other admirals who also became commandant. And that just helped my career. Uh, and like I say, just very fortunate timing. Now, you did some, uh, well, first off, how, how did you get put into the officer program? How did you become an officer after doing your six years enlisted? What was, like, I know how the Marine Corps, you could do, uh, you know, a program that's, uh, you know, where you go from enlisted to an officer and you have to have college credits and there's all this work to be done. What is it that the Coast Guard does for that? It's it's all very similar. In fact, uh, all five of the, or six now with the Space Force, but um, the, the military operates under what's called, for officers, operates on, under what's called DOPMA, Defense Officers Personnel Management Act. And so we all have pretty similar uh, regulations about how you promote officers and that kind of thing. In my case, at about five or six years of service, um, I'd been doing well. I had good marks. I had uh, taken some tests, CLEP and SAT and what have you, and I'd scored really well on those. So I applied for officer candidate school. And uh, my first time out, I just barely missed it. My second time, uh, I just barely qualified, but I squeaked across the line, was accepted to officer candidate school and went to that, yeah, I think it was a 24 week program or something, resident, it's like going through boot camp all over again, only only tougher. Um, and so I did that and, uh, and graduated as an ensign. After that, um, well, when first off, when were you stationed in NATO? Was it after uh, candidate school or before? After officer candidate school, as in fact, that was, I'd been an officer, I think about five years or so when I went to Italy the first time and commanded a little NATO base on the island of Lampedusa, which that base is Sounds gone. terrible. Sounds ter it, terrible, being on an Italian oh, it island. Was, it was <laughs> so hard to take. Um, you know, I, I won't go into the, the more colorful details, but uh, it was an island that went from about uh, 1,500 people during the winter to several thousand tourists in the, in the summertime. The beaches would be crowded with Italian tourists. And I gotta tell you, uh, Italian tourists are not ugly people and it was not a, it was not a bad time to be the NATO base commander over there. I, I really loved that assignment and, uh, and I loved the Italian people. I loved what I did there. Um, it, it, it was work that I can be proud of. I was also the U.S. consul rep to, to the Pelagi Islands during that time. 
So I got to to work with a lot of levels of people, and it was it was really nice. During your time with NATO, you were involved, and like we said before, you wouldn't realize how many conflicts that uh, the Coast Guard gets involved in overseas. You were involved in the Bosnian conflict, the Bosnian War, and uh, also in the second Gulf of Sidra incident, which before we got started, you gave me a little history lesson on that, and I would appreciate it if you uh, discussed uh, your uh, leadership during that time. That was an interesting event. Uh, so the first Gulf of Sidra was when uh, the U.S. attacked Tripoli, Libya. I think that was around 1986, uh, thereabouts. Uh, the second incident was in January of 89 when um, the U.S. Uh, Navy shot down two Libyan MiGs in the Gulf of Sidra. And so I was the closest NATO base and the closest U.S. base to uh, to that event when it happened. And I got a call on the, the stew line, the classified phone line from uh, Navy Intelligence in La Maddalena warning me that, uh, that we had just shot down these two MiGs. Well, coincidentally, I had a logistics flight on deck, a, a Navy helicopter that brought all of our supplies in from Sicily. And he was on deck and he was just getting ready to take off. Um, and so I sent a runner out to signal the helicopter to shut down and, and have the pilot come in to see me. And he was furious. He was so mad at me for wasting fuel, having him shut down. And, and he came in and he's, you know, I, I won't repeat all of the things he said, but it was colorful. And, and, he, and he, you know, you better have a very good reason for having me shut down this helicopter. And I said, well, we just shut, shot down two Libyan MiGs 100 miles from here. And he said, that's a very good reason. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. he calmed down pretty quickly. The helicopter crew stayed on deck. We became the focal point for several weeks. We had uh, uh, European press just like taking the island by siege to find out what was going on, what we had done. Uh, so that was kind of my 15 minutes of fame. I had a friend who was uh, uh, bureau chief for Associated Press up in the Vatican, and she said she saw my name flying across their messages all day, every day for a couple of weeks. Now, how is that having to deal with the press when you're a commander and you're dealing with I mean, some pretty tough decision making and they're hounding you for answers? How do, how, how do you how do you provide those answers to the press at a time like that? How, how do you deliver that? Well, that was my first real experience with media relations. I went on actually to be a media relations officer for the Coast Guard, but but I didn't have a lot of training at that time. So I was just kind of going by seat of the pants. Can't say that I handled it very well, but my policy has always been to be as open with people about what's going on as the law will allow me to be. There are things that I'm even to this day not allowed to talk about, and I just won't because I respect that. But to the maximum extent that I can, even maybe sort of singeing the edges of, of certain things to, you know, um, I, I, I try to be as open as I can. And so we had press coming down and talking to me and and I took them around and showed them all of our electronics suites on the base and let them see what we were capable of doing. They thought that maybe we were 
guiding the operations in Tripoli. And we, we weren't with we Loran and Omega and stuff like that. But I, you know, just stayed open with them. Yeah, transparency is a hard thing to do when you're in the service and when you're in the military because you they don't want you telling them anything. Same thing with the police department. My time in the police department, anybody ever asked you a question, you say, call this number. One police plaza, ask for the, you know, the lieutenant that's in charge. You don't get involved with the press and they kind of beat it into your head, you know, because they don't want bad publicity. So, um, and, uh, uh, you know, a good example of that is a Marine officer who recently, you know, put out his own personal opinion about how we exited Afghanistan and they've been hammering him since. Um, he was a colonel in the Marine Corps and uh, he had some uncolorful words to say about the exit. You know, I, the exit happened way too late and th that's for sure. But like everything, we never learn our lesson. When, you know, um, did you see a difference and from when being an enlisted personnel to when you became an officer in the mindset of how enlisted people think compared to how an officer has to command. There's always that friction between the enlisted and the officer personnel because it's, ah, the lieutenant doesn't understand. You know, he was never an enlisted guy. You being enlisted, how did that help you when you were uh, commanding troops? You know, well, one of the things is because I had been enlisted, I was wearing a good conduct medal on my chest. And um, enlisted people, they spot an officer with a good conduct. They just, they know it. And so they know that you were one of them. And that can be good news or bad news because there are some officers who get their commission and they become total jerks. But but it does give you some credibility and uh, and and. The enlisted people knowing that you understand what it's like to be in their shoes really helps. Uh, you talked about uh, the the Marine Corps officer. You know, it's there are laws that apply to officers that don't apply to enlisted people. It is against the law under the UCMJ for an officer to criticize the president. It's not illegal for for enlisted people to do that. But the reason for that is that as military officers we have access to things that could skew the power of government. And we, you know, we saw in, in the January 6th insurrection, you know, there's, there's information coming out about military officers who may or may not have acted properly. We've got to be careful that we don't allow military officers to become involved in running the government because that can be a really, really bad thing. So even though we have a lot of power, even though we have a lot of authority, we also have a lot of restriction on how we're able to use that. And I think that's a good thing. And I think we always want it to be that way, that our, we have a separation between the civilian and the military branches of government. The civilians own the military, not the other way around. And and I think it always needs to stay that way. I think you make a good point. And that's something that I didn't realize is that the officers have a different, you know, level of, uh, you know, how they have to follow the UCMJ a little bit differently. Um, leaving and learning what you did in the service, in the Coast Guard leadership, obviously you've been in uh, a lot of leadership positions. You were with NATO. I have to pick your brain about what's going on currently over in the Ukraine crisis, just real quick, if we could touch on the European mindset for their military personnel. They obviously 
think a lot differently than maybe the American service service members are trained to think and how they operate is different. You know, we operate on a global scale. They basically do what they're supposed to do, protect their country. They sign up to serve and protect their territory and their homes from evil and danger. What the Russian government is doing is evil. They're invading their sovereign nation, their neighbors, uh, innocent people are getting killed. How do, do you think, given your experience over in Europe, the European allies, the NATO allies are viewing it from their perspective? Well, I, I know right now they're very nervous. Uh, you know, shades of the 1930s when Hitler annexed uh, uh, Austria and Hungary and Poland and, and you know, the Anschluss. Uh, this looks a lot like that. And, and Europeans are, are obviously afraid of that. In terms of NATO, in terms of what NATO is doing, um, you know, I think there's very good reason for, for NATO. Um, the, I, I think looking out for your neighbors is an admirable thing. Uh, as a police officer, you know, neighborhood watch is a good thing. You have uh, actively engaged citizens looking out for each other. And I think that watching out for our, for our allies in Europe is, is a good thing to do. I think it's become too military. I think it's become too hot. As a rules of engagement officer in the Bosnian war, uh, the thing that I was most proud of was that my weapon systems never went hot. Um, I, I think we're really, um, uh, we're, we're more aggressive, I think, than is safe for the world right now. And we need to be very cautious about that. But having alliances, having partnerships where you're looking out for each other is a good thing. And I think the European nations want to know that Americans care about aggressors trying to take their, their sovereignty from them. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I always would think that because I, when I was deployed in Iraq, there was a Polish military there. Sp uh, Spain had troops there. I always felt that their mindset was a little bit different than ours. Obviously, they didn't want to be there. Um, you know, they didn't believe in what the conflict was. And, you know, as I got older, I learned a lot of lessons. And, you know, we could dive into a whole discussion about that. Um, but they always had a different mindset about war in general. And, you know, I just, I, I just felt like, you know, given what's going on, maybe... The, maybe not soft is the word, but they haven't had to deal with something like this since World War II. Are they are they prepared really for people crossing the border with tanks? No, they're not, and that's that's really kind of our fault because we've big brothered the European nations to death. Uh, you know, Italy. Had, I don't even know how many NATO bases we've got active NATO bases in Italy right now. But from one end of the country to the other, you know, Aviano Air Base and all of the of the other bases that we've had in Italy, all the way down to Sigonella in Sicily. Um, so we've we've big brothered them to the point where they haven't had the need, and in some cases haven't had the opportunity to provide for their own defense. And and then, you know, I, and, and Ukraine is not a, a NATO nation per se, but, you know, they're asking us for our support and we don't want to get involved in a direct conflict with Russia. So we're having to be very careful how we support them. And the countries that are NATO countries nearby are very concerned about what that means to them. Poland, for example, is very concerned. You know, about I, what that means to them. I always, 
I always admire the perspective of somebody who's actually had skin in the game. I mean, you've been over there. You served with NATO. You've been in the military service. You've served in this country's Coast Guard. And, you know, the people that you always hear on TV that are giving their opinions on this never had skin in the game. So I do appreciate your perspective being, you know, think about it. You know, everyone's always got something to say or tweet and 95% of them never had skin in the game. So I do appreciate that perspective. Now, your time, obviously, with the Coast Guard and being an officer and being uh, with NATO, leadership. Leadership is a big part of your job. You transitioned into the civilian world into a leadership position. Tell me a little bit about your work with the Habitat uh, for Humanity. Yeah, so I actually what happened was there was a reduction in force when I hit about 17 years of service. And so I got an honorable discharge rather than a retirement and went out into the uh, public sector. And yeah, I went to, I had been volunteering with Habitat for Humanity uh, for a few years uh, following Hurricane Aniki in Hawaii. Um, and uh, so I really had a strong sense of what Habitat did. And uh, they offered me a job as executive director for the state of Hawaii and also for the two affiliates on Oahu. Uh, so I really wore three hats there and, and uh, uh, took them to their first million dollar budget on Oahu and built a bunch of houses and uh, um, can't say, uh, you know, that model, uh, helping people help themselves rather than just giving people a bunch of cash and, and, and letting them spend it, helping people help themselves is a terrific model for in, engaging society and improving situations. You mean just don't hand people cash and hope that they spend it appropriately? Is that what you're <laughs> suggesting? That's that's just crazy talk, don't you know? <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, if you want to give me a stimulus check, you know, I, as, as opposed as I am to taxes, uh, you know, if the government gives me money, I'm going to spend it. And that's what everyone oh. does. If, they, if the uh, government gives I'm you owed money, it. you spend it. We, we're, we're owed that money. They take too much. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel bad about it. You got that right. Yeah. So uh, your work with Habitat Humanity, then you do work in Mexico with a Christian missionary. How did you get involved in that? That seemed like we're going from Hawaii to Mexico. Uh, tell me about that. There was actually a lot of, of Oregon in between, and I had pastored a congregation in Oregon and, and done a lot of ministry work there. And um, a friend asked me to come down to Mexico for a few weeks, and um, way down into Mexico. If I'd gone any farther into Mexico, I would have been heading out, literally, halfway through the country on, on Lake Chapala. Um, and... I just fell in love with Mexico, with the Mexican people. Um, it's it's not at all like the media paints it. It's a, it's a much different thing being down there. Um, and so while I was down there, they offered me an opportunity to come back in, in a permanent position. Um, it was definitely missionary style. It was not a get rich kind of thing. I've never... I've never taken a direct salary ever for ministry and don't want to. So um, I did get a little bit of financial help from people, but um, but it was really all about working down there with the gringos who lived there and with the Mexican people. And, and it was wonderful. 
how long did you spend down there? You spent quite a long time down there. And what was what was the main need for the people down in Mexico? What was uh, what was given most? So I was really actually only there for about three years, but um, one of the focuses of what we were doing down there was education. Um, we were providing scholarships for high school students, little things like, uh, you know, it would cost them, I think it was uh, the equivalent of about a dollar a week to take the bus to school. And so we were providing scholarships for uh, kids to be able to take the bus to high school so that they could finish high school uh, and providing them the materials they need. Uh, in Mexico, students have to have uniforms and poor people can't afford that. So we helped them out with that. So helping them with that. And then uh, we got involved with the program with the state of Jalisco, which is the state that I lived in. Um, they had a, um, a vocational education program. Uh, and uh, so we helped get some students uh, trained in culinary arts. Um, we took a fund to get nursing students put through nurse, uh, nursing assistant school, I guess it was. Um, and, and so providing education for the local people, they're fabulous people. They, they want to work. It's just that the opportunities have not historically existed. And when you can get them, when you can break the cycle of poverty for them, get them the education, man, they go gangbusters with it. Now, we're going to be wrapping things up, but I got to ask you, um, cause I, I, you know, I know you and, you know, we've done some work together in the past. Are you going to make an attempt to continue to serve in, in any capacity in the near future? Well, you know that, uh, I, I ran in the 2020 campaign, uh, for the libertarian nomination for president. Uh, that was exhausting and expensive. It was very financially um, uh, costly to Don and me. Um, I, I would be willing to consider something like that again, but it would it would have to be something that had much more support than than what we had in 2020. We were doing it pretty much out of pocket. So if I was going to do something again, I'm not trying to to seed the the thing, but uh, we we would definitely need to have uh, financial support behind us before we would move forward. Yeah, it's a uh, you know it 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 is an exhausting process. What you did, you went by car, state to state, nonstop, just driving and meeting people and campaigning and uh you know it it said a lot about your work ethic and from what we've discussed today with your time and service um your work ethic really paid off i mean e7 in six years became an officer served with nato commanded some major decisions during the time of crisis you know i i, I see where that work ethic came from but uh you know i appreciate you coming on and i appreciate your service and i want to thank you for your service as I do to everybody who comes on this podcast, you know, only a certain percentage of Americans do take an oath and enlist to serve and protect the country or get involved in law enforcement, the fire department, all first responders, not just the military. Um, you know, it's selfish acts like that, that people put their lives on the lines to protect the rest of everybody else. And that's why 
I do this podcast. So I want to thank thank you for your service, Ken. And if anybody wants to follow you, Ken, where can they reach out to you? Well, on Facebook, uh, Wildfire CF, Wildfire CF is uh, is where you can find me on Facebook. Um, and uh, happy to hear from people. And and I would say, Kevin, by the way, and I think you as a as a career police officer would agree. You don't have to do big stuff all the time. Just do stuff. Do good things in your community. That that makes a difference. Yes, and treat everybody with just just respect. Like everybody's a human being. That's all. We need a lot more of that in this world. And uh, you know, I want to thank you for what you've done. Um, if you are listening to this podcast on the audio, please make sure you hit the subscribe button. Give us a rate. Give us a comment. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating. It helps us get pushed up. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Give us a comment. Give us a thumbs up. We do appreciate it. And check us out on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook at Enlisted Podcast. And you can go to our website, EnlistedProductions.com. We have a website up for any podcast that is produced by Enlisted. And this podcast itself, you could follow and search anything you want about this podcast. We do have a blog up as well. And uh, this episode will also have a blog attached to it. So, Ken, I want to thank you again for coming on. I do appreciate your time. Uh, it is wonderful to see you. And, uh, you know, I'm glad we made it out of this pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah, we... Come on. <laughs> it's been great seeing you. Thanks, Ken. <laughs>